was like, wait, <laughs> wait, this is a job? You get paid to dress people. How does it work? And they were like, oh no, we shop. Sometimes we draw and design. And I was like, wait, but that sounds amazing. It's, I was fascinated. I asked them if I could work for free. And they agreed. I mean, who wouldn't? Um, but I showed up with that Cape Town girl mentality, which they were not ready for. Everything I did, I did as if it were, it was so glamorous. I dressed up. They were like, you're not going to be able to work in those shoes. And I was like, oh, just you watch me. I showed up in my little kitten heels. I carried racks. I did all sorts of things and I loved it. I actually loved it. I immediately had, I had a gift for it. It was unreal. And um, I only worked for free one day and then they hired me. Yeah, and I've been working for 20 years. Hey, welcome to this week's episode of Breaking Out. I'm your host, Jared Lazar. Ever wondered what it takes to step outside of a traditional job or career and chase your dreams? Let's find out, as each week I'll be interviewing inspiring guests who've done something unconventional and created an interesting, novel or unusual career for themselves. Over the course of the show so far, we've learnt how our guests have broken down some of the walls boxing them in, in their careers and lives, whatever those might be. Access to opportunities, a lack of acceptance in their particular space, or the absence of a clear path to progression in a new or unusual career. And sometimes, like you'll hear today on this episode, Those walls are stereotypes or conceptions that society has about who we ought to be or what we ought to do or, more importantly, what we ought to be capable of achieving, purely based on where we come from and what we look like. I was so thrilled to be reminded by today's guest that those walls, they're made to be broken. Spoiler alert, there's lots of zombie talk ahead. On this episode... Cape Town-born costume designer Yulin Hafke walks us through how her passion for fashion design took her all the way to the United States and a very successful career working in television and film. Yulin is perhaps most famous for her work on US TV show The Walking Dead, which is the highest rated scripted TV show in cable television in the States. She's also worked on a number of other movies and films like Hullfest, The Resident and The Purge, as well as commercials for the likes of Nescafe, M&M's and BBC World. Yulin, thanks so much for joining us. It's, it's an absolute pleasure having you. How, how are you today? Hi. Hi, I'm so well. It's early in the morning here in New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, and it's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Awesome, awesome. So let's jump straight into it. Uh, the Walking Dead, obviously one of the, the big claims to fame in your career. <laughs> For a long Thank time, you. it was one of my favorite TV shows. And oh my gosh. For our listeners who don't watch TV and have no idea what The Walking Dead is, without giving away spoilers, uh, the basic plot revolves around this group of people who are trying to survive in a post-apocalyptic world where most of the human race have been turned into zombies. I think what makes The Walking Dead different from other zombie TV shows or movies, for me at least, is... The characters are so complex and, and well-developed and in many ways they're relatable. A lot of themes like mm-hmm. family and community and, and that sort of thing. And the second thing relevant to today is the attention to detail 
and the realism in how you know both the zombies and also the the characters are, are kind of depicted a lot of that i think is down to your work in the costume design department i think you were there for six seasons right or you did work on the show for six seasons correct yeah in the first season i was on set with frank darabont and doing the costumes with mostly rick and then in the other seasons i designed so it was a okay. huge promotion yeah and yeah. and Talk me through what was that like, you know, to work on set on a show like that, as big as it was, and with the cast and, and crew that you did. It was hot. It was very hot <laughs> in Atlanta. It was it was a heat wave that summer, and we were shooting in a in a creek. I know you wouldn't expect to find a creek in Atlanta, Georgia, because right. it's landlocked. But we found one, and we shot in it for months, and it was really hot and sweaty. Just to paint the picture, Frank Terramont is the director of movies like The Shawshank Redemption and The Green Mile. I'm sure you've heard of those. Him writing this zombie show was interesting. It's one of the reasons why I signed up to do it. I said, zombies? Really? Frank Terramont? Absolutely. <laughs> and in Atlanta? Okay, whatever. Here we go. So I left um, at the time. I was actually driving from New York. I'd just finished a film there and driving back to LA, got the phone call, switched direction, went to Atlanta to follow yeah. this man with this dream. Wow. And I can't believe it worked out the way that it did. <laughs> it is unbelievable. But we always kept saying we had to make people believe in zombies. And mm -hmm. in order to do that, we had to make everything else seem really realistic and relatable. And you nailed it with that intro and that little blurb about the show, because that's exactly what we were all going for. I remember the first time I saw zombies walking. I actually laughed in my <laughs> very <laughs> loud. I was like, "That what is going on? But um, eventually it became such an art. Yeah, It's an yeah. art. There were zombie schools. People would come in and be trained to walk. Greg oh, Nicotero wow. is a, yes. They would come, it was called zombie school with no makeup on. They had to show us what they could do. And Greg Nicotero was in charge of that. And he taught people how to move. And it all made such a difference. Um, the thing for me in terms of zombies and costumes is that a lot of times makeup is only responsible for a face and hands. The rest is a costume. And if you see them from behind, you still had to know that that was a zombie. Right. So the costumes did play a really big part. I wanted, I kept saying to my crew, I want the audience to be able to smell them. And when, <laughs> and when the audience can smell them through the screen, we've achieved the look. Um, right. it, was, it was fun. Obviously working on a show like The Walking Dead and because of how big the show was and all of the awards that it won, what does that do for your career? You know, I'm sure up to this day, even like this conversation <laughs> we're having now, people, the first thing they ask you is about The Walking Dead. What has that done for your life and, and for, for your career so far? Um, the Walking Dead was a huge career booster for me, going, especially going from being a costumer on season one, then to designing the entire show for five seasons. It was hard work and yeah. it paid off. Uh, I could not have imagined the attention that the show would get and to be a part of that was such an honor. 
and to be there from day one, to be there laughing at the walk and then <laughs> taking it all so seriously. We, I, I could not be more appreciative of the fans, um, the support. My brother-in-law just started watching the show now. Oh, wow. And he's in, in for surprise. Now. Yeah. Right. And only now he's like, oh my gosh, yo, look at what you did. <laughs> like, yeah, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Big thing. Big, big thing. Um, it was very hard work. We the schedule was was seven days on shooting an episode. And if you look at the quality of those episodes, they looked like films. Yeah. Absolutely. So there was a lot, and there was not much downtime in between episodes. So it was really, really hard work. We were so devoted, dedicated entirely to this process. We also had to shoot away from Atlanta because mm-hmm. it became so big. We had people hiding up in trees, taking photographs. If I was standing next to Norman, having a coffee, next thing we were dating, you know, it was just mad. And and that's Norman, Norman Reedus. Uh, I think he, he yes. plays Daryl in the show. Daryl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. He was, I think, my favorite character. <laughs> He's everybody's favorite character. I think it's because he evolved. Yeah. You know, in season one, when you think back to the character he played there, he was quite an unevolved, kind of brutish, um, yeah, exactly. mean guy. And then now he's the savior and the hero. But I think we can all see a bit of ourselves in that transformation. Right. And and hopefully you pick the right way. You know, mm. when faced with those circumstances, who would you become? Would you become greedy suddenly like some of the people? Or would you become this guy who just turned into the hero and a savior of these people. So we all, I think it's such an aspirational character and who would have thought, yeah. you know? <laughs> and Norman is incredible, such a great guy. Um, yeah. Lovely. This, mm-hmm. he's, he, he is, there's so much of him in that character and I think that's what has made such a difference. Um, so Daryl is an interesting character because in season one, you know, literally it was written redneck. That's how they described him. And with that goes a lot of negative connotations Mm, mm, and stereotypes, which I don't, you know, being a so-called colored girl from South Africa, I don't like stereotypes in any way. So I don't do them. And in season two, I really tried to change that narrative. You know, when you read a script and they give you these characters and they describe them, There's more to, I'm trying not to be too political, but for example, the the black guy in the script, and he was an IT guy. Mm -hmm. It's a complex character. You you can dress him any way you want, but it shouldn't be stereotypical. And then the Asian guy, Glenn, again, you know, see not to take away from anything from season one or the comic book, but he looked like, the character from Indiana Jones and he was a grown man (laughs) he wasn't a (laughs) child so I tried to um just make it real in season two make it real and make it make it make sense (laughs) yeah that's incredible um and I think it shows so with Daryl for example he got a motorbike in season two and if you know anything about Norman Reedus you know that he is a biker I encouraged him because he's also a daredevil of note. He he doesn't care about being protected with glasses and a helmet or a yeah. jacket. I said, okay, well, you need something. 
something, any like a base. How about a base? He was like, fine, we'll show me something. Frank Darabont and, and Norman were like, well, show me something. And I didn't have anything to show except for the brother Merle from season one. I had his vest right. hanging in my office, like across from me on a rack. And I said, well, I have this. And I took that and I had seen drawings of wings and, you know, Hell's Angels, Americana, kind of values um, popped into my head. And I thought, okay, well, what if we just drew this, put it on the back of this vest quickly and show that. And I took a picture and sent it and Frank Darabont loved it. He was like, he actually said in an email, am I allowed to swear? I don't know. <laughs> he said I was no, no, actually, no, I've, I totally forgot to mention that. No. <laughs> it's I a won't. clean podcast. <laughs> but he said I was effing genius. Frank being a writer and all, I was like, okay, wow. Use your words <laughs> to <Yeah>. describe <laughs> what you like. And that's um, that's how that came yeah. about. And then I, I decided that they were cut from the same cloth and that he would become the guardian angel of the group and it would, we would show it and represent it that way. And so that face has become iconic now. I was going to say a lot of the process sometimes is, you know, it's not as calculated as you might think. <laughs> it's, um, it's being open, being humble to suggestion, being open to ideas. Um, I pray a lot. <laughs> sometimes I just, I'm like, oh Lord, I... Whew, what am I going to do with this one? And and so it, it's constant growth and evolution um, and being open to it. It's very natural for me. It, it just clicked. Yeah. I didn't know that there was a job like this in existence. I had no idea until I became a model. You know, there was a lot of times how light-skinned colored girls got to see right. <laughs> a different <laughs> side of the world. It's yeah. just true because we... We were so interested, what do they call us, exotic? And I started modeling, I got scouted. I'm very tall. <laughs> I'm taller <laughs> than, I, I, yeah, I'm tall, I, um, I'm light-skinned and I got scouted because they, they call us exotic, right? They don't know what I am a lot yeah. of times. Yeah. And, um, and I got scouted in church. Of all places. Of all places. And my conservative mother actually allowed it, which I still to this day don't know how that <laughs> happened. And I started modeling. And I, um, one of my, I didn't ever take it that seriously um, because my family's very, they're in education and they're highly educated colored people, you know, right. so called colored people. So they just didn't even have space in their brains for this artistic side of me or the modeling. They were like, whatever, you're making pocket mm. money. Good. Go, go model, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I did one shoot when I, in my, I was in my twenties and these people were dressing me. And I was like, wait, <laughs> wait, this is a job. You get paid to dress people. How does it work? And they were like, oh no, we shop. Sometimes we draw and design. And I was like, wait, but that sounds amazing. It's, I was fascinated. <laughs> I asked them if I could work for free. And they agreed. I mean, who wouldn't? Wow. Um, but I showed up with that Cape Town girl mentality, which they right. were not ready for. You right. know, I everything I did, I did as if it were, it was so glamorous. I dressed up. They were like, you're not going to be able to work in those shoes. And I was like, oh, <laughs> just you watch me. I showed up in my little kitten heels. I carried racks. I did all sorts of things and I loved it. 
I actually loved it. I immediately had, I had a gift for it. It was unreal. Mm -hmm. And um, I only worked for free one day and then they hired yeah. me. Yeah, and I've been working for 20 years. <laughs> so, so yeah, it just clicked. Incredible, <laughs> yeah. And, and at the time that all of this was going on, uh, you had the University of Cape Town, right? I, I think you were studying accounting. Gosh, I did, yeah. So my father is, um, he was the head of the commerce faculty at his college. He's a professor, he's a, a lecturer. And I always had an affinity for numbers and accounting and business. Yeah. And I naturally, you know, went straight to UCT to study accounting. I was going to be an accountant. That's what I was meant to do in life is what I thought. But I got there and I was horribly distracted. My friends who were studying English and art and getting their BA degrees, I was hanging out with them. I dressed up every day. I just was <laughs> like, it's like my brain just exploded with, with all of this. Yeah. And yeah. I realized that I was going to have to fight a little bit for what I wanted to do yeah. and what I believed in. You know, I grew up very con in a very conservative household, which I appreciate, but I had to show my parents that there is another way. And it was not easy to do. Um, you know, for years, my mom would, at a dinner party, still ask her friends to give me a job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a costume designer. But many years later, my mother and father actually came to visit me on set. Right. And then they got a full picture. And she said she was proud of me. She was like, I'm proud of you. This is cool. And I was yeah. like, I know. I've been trying to tell you for many years. Um, <laughs> it was just very hard for them to understand that as an artist, you could make money, have mm -hmm. security. Um, and, and it is not easy. But I, I, I just have a great work ethic, you know, that upbringing, that Cape Town upbringing. Yeah. I, 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 I come in, I work hard and I don't give up, yeah. you know. I, I so. mean, that, that, that must have been quite a, a stressful change. One of the themes that we're looking to explore on the show is how people can move away from this blanket of safety. Because I think there is safety in a career like accounting um or law for example and, and i say neither of those disparagingly because I, I am a lawyer and i'm married to an accountant so right as i say that, that's not meant disparagingly but i think there, there is at least for people that come from where you do this safety in that and i'm sure for your parents as well that might have been the mindset you know you've got to do a, a degree and that's going to set you up in a career and is going to be a steady paycheck and, and all of that. How did you process that mentally and, and deal with that transition of saying, actually, you know what, I'm going to pursue my passion and never mind the safety of, of this career. There's this thing that I really love and am absolutely certain that it's what I want to do. Yes, there's like some uncertainty around the paycheck and, and you know, the work that might go into it might mean that sometimes I have to work for free. As as you said, that's how it started. How yeah. do you deal with that? I knew that it was my gift the minute I got to do it the first time. Okay. And my career went as such. I worked for free for one day and then I was employed. Um, after two years, I was designing. 
commercials inter- for international companies. Oh, wow. I studied with some of the best designers in the field. Um, I was very lucky to be able to do all of that. But I, again, evolution, being open and humble, always, always learning. It never stops. And having faith in yourself and your abilities because you can't, your art is unique to you. And you can charge where you want for that art and that you know what you bring to the table. You also have to realize that sometimes it's not, the position is not right for you on a certain job. There are times I didn't get jobs and I sat there feeling a little bit upset about it. But then I have to realize somebody else is better to tell that story. And there's one coming that I'm supposed to tell. Yeah, yeah. And some in the beginning, it is tough not knowing where your next paycheck is coming from. The in this industry that I'm in, it's it's up to you how often you work. Yeah. You can decide, but it's also perspective. You can look at it in a way that oh yay, I get a month off to be able to live my life, and then I go work hard for three months. You just have to reset your brain and yeah. and be okay with your decisions. That not everything is for everyone. The other thing that I have to add is my accounting background helps me be really exceptional at my craft right now. I'm not just out here going, like, for example, I just did a, re- a huge budget show, a show with a huge budget. So I don't have to calculate at all times while I'm shopping or designing. I don't have to worry so much. But the show I'm doing right now is really low budget and the high end at the same time. So that's a real combination of the accounting brain and talent. I'm buying things at stores that are affordable and then recreating, changing buttons or fitting, making things more fitted to make it look super high end, but on a budget. And I wouldn't, I don't think that with, without studying business and accounting, I would be as good at my craft. I think it makes me better. I love that so much. Um, you, you kind of, what you're expressing as I'm hearing it is kind of, there's this continual journey of of learning things along the way. And, and even though you might change from one path to another, you don't lose the skills and the experience that you've picked up. And that that's just fascinating for me. To that point, I guess. So you're in South Africa and you, as you say, you start, you know, doing these commercials and, and you're now working with some of the, the top designers in, in South Africa and, and, and you've trained under them as well. Moving to the United States, at what point does that um, feature in the journey? Was that always an end goal or was it just an opportunity that came along for you? I love Cape Town. I love being from Cape Town. I think being from Africa, people don't realize what a big city we're from. It's a small, big city, you know, (laughs) especially with fashion, especially in terms of fashion. I've traveled in Europe and Europe's always a little bit ahead fashion wise, right? So I'm traveling in Sweden and I'm seeing new fashion harem pants came out at this point. Yeah. And then I went home to visit my mommy afterwards and it started popping up in Cape Town. It took two years before it popped up in South in uh, America. Oh, so wow. okay. South Africa is pretty, South Africa is very unique in, in its trends and fashion, yeah. but very ahead of the game. Okay. And so, so oh, my journey's a little, a, a bit of a twisted story. I had no intention of leaving South Africa, but I okay. also wanted to be the best, right. you know, and be surrounded by the best. And 
I have a bit of a competitive spirit. I was an athlete in high school and growing up. So I've always, you know, I want to be like, I want to win. I get you. I um, get you. So I was like, you know, I, I, I rose to in my career very quickly in South Africa and I wanted to see what else was out there. Mm. At the very same time that I was even considering this, I met someone who is now my ex okay. and I had the opportunity to travel to America and I, I took the opportunity. I was like, why not? You know, I'm young. I'll, I'll just go for six months. I remember I packed a bag for six months or something like that. I didn't bring my laptop. I didn't bring my modeling book. And then I ended up staying. Wow. I went to Hollywood. I went straight to Hollywood. I lived actually in Hollywood, which at the time is the equivalent of Seapoint in the 90s. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was like, since it was my mommy, I called my mom and I said, mom, um, the homeless people here wear costumes. That's the, only, that's the only difference. It's not, I thought I was going to see Marilyn Monroe sitting on the back of a Cadillac with her hair blowing in the wind. But no, it was not that. It was not glamorous and I was poor. I lived in an apartment, which my friends called Cell Block 103 because it was <laughs> tiny. My sink for my kitchen was also the sink for the bathroom. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I got my furniture <laughs> off the street every Monday. And I think it was Tuesdays, actually. They, people leave, still now, mm-hmm. people will leave furniture, whatever, on trash day. But it's so nice. The stuff is not bad. It's just like the rich people in the Hollywood Hills don't want it anymore. And they just leave yeah. it there. I got such cute things. <laughs> <laughs> and because of my skill set, I wasn't able to work for the first little while, but I still yeah. looked fabulous. I would go to this one shop and buy their broken stuff and like fix it up and go to fancy parties in Hollywood. And people would still ask me, where did you get that? And I was like, um, I made it, you oh. know? So <laughs> that was my first yeah. two, my first year in Hollywood. But then once again, working for free, um, getting to meet people. And before mm. you know it, I was traveling. I my, booked my next job in North Carolina and then to Atlanta, to New York, back to LA. And it's just been ongoing. Um, you really do lead with your reputation in this business, people. Right. We spend right. a lot of time together, a lot of time together. Some Some days are 18 hours long. And in order to be successful, you have to be surrounded with positive people. People mm, encourage mm. you. You have to do, be responsible with your actions and your words and, and be encouraging. Yeah, reputation goes a long way. Yeah. It's, um, that's, why th- that's why sometimes it hurts even more when somebody doesn't like you, you know, because that's going to happen. Right. That, right. You're just like, oh, who do they know? Who are they going to tell? <laughs> like, was, there ever, was, was there ever a point in your story where you kind of hit this wall and things are not working out maybe you're not getting the jobs that you want or um you know the films or, or projects that you're working on are not kind of getting the traction that you need and you kind of get frustrated with with the path that you've taken and, and decide you know maybe actually i'm just going to give up or i'll go and do something else did that ever has that ever happened yet so in in i've mentioned before telling the story Sometimes it's not as exciting in terms of clothing as I might want it to be. I have a business (laughs) on the side where I make bulga. I make clothing for weddings and custom gowns and and that that satisfies that need. 
for me, I make Halloween costumes, which is my favorite thing to do. You know, we didn't grow up with Halloween in South of course, Africa. Yeah, it was banned. So when I got here as a grown up and I get to dress up for Halloween and eat like sweets, I'm obsessed with that holiday. I love it. And I make really high end, good costumes. I've dressed Jenna Dewan um, oh, wow. okay. as a fairy and. I've made some really great costumes. I love, love, love it. So I try to find my um, my passion for mm. in other ways. I paint um, my home. Well, one of my homes it looks like a little fairyland. <laughs> you know, we I find ways to keep it fun and interesting. My office, yeah. but yeah, the, to answer your question in a sim- simplify, um, there have absolutely been times where I didn't mm. agree with the vision. Um, necessarily and I have gotten frustrated Um, but I learned to trust I learned to trust the person who wrote the script and go with that try to still give them the best quality product that I can for example I'm gonna have to explain myself here I've worked on The Walking Dead I worked with three different showrunners Frank Darabont who thought I was genius remember (laughs) that story (laughs) and then um, I worked with Glenn Mazzara, who loved my work. And he's the one who, so with Frank, I was able to create Daryl's vest. I was able to create Michonne's cape, all the things that make my little group of superheroes into dolls. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. They, they have they, they have the accoutrement. They have this stuff that makes them like superheroes. But by season six, I had a new showrunner and he was more into the story and much less into showing off. Sure. So for me, it was like, eh, maybe it's my, my time here is done. Let's yeah. let's see. Let's bring some new energy into this position that I used to hold. And let me go see what else I can do. And that's how that came about. And the movie I did directly after that, I prayed so hard. I said, you know what, Lord, I, I want to do something different. I want to do something else. And I got uh, this movie called Forever, My Girl, which is nothing like you would have thought that I would ever <laughs> It's a country singer and right, all these right, things that right. are not really, don't really, you know, I'm hip hop or whatever. Sure. So, <laughs> so, but it was so fascinating to do. And I got to hand bead the pink dress that is shown for her date night in that film. I hand beaded that for two months. Oh, wow. Okay. Sure. And that was very cool. My granny, I called my granny and she was watching me do it to make sure that I was using just the right length of cotton you know, and the right needles to do it. She's like, oh, don't do it like that. It was so cute. Um, my career, In my career, though, I keep going back to the horror genre. That's what I do. I would I would get scripts after The Walking Dead. For eight months, I didn't work. I took a break. And I would get this script, and it would be this woman hosting a dinner party in a high-end outfit. And then the killer comes in and kills everyone, and the, they're all covered in blood. Every script I got was like... And then they all die and then there's blood. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I've clearly created a space for myself in a genre that I didn't know. (laughs) I'm like scared. I'm scared of horror films. I don't, that's not my go-to. I'm like a rom-com, Cinderella, you know, girl, I'm. It's funny that I've ended up here, but I also think it's because I get scared that I'm good at it. Because I actually can see when it's scary. So I'm like, oh, okay, man. well, that scares me. That's that's good. That's that's the way to go. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, yes, there are moments I think in everyone's career when you when you question 
your life choices. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, but I have absolutely no regrets. And I'm only, I just signed a contract for eight films. Um, oh, wow. So, Congrats. That's, in, that's incredible. Yeah, what's, yeah. What's so exciting is that each one is completely different, but mm. all in the sci-fi horror genre. The eight film Mahadi series was produced by Blumhouse and Amazon. And four of those movies were released in October 2020, with mostly first-time directors and diverse casts and crews. The stories are those of marginalized people, and for Yulin at least, a large part of her work was focused around breaking stereotypes. It was, I've always thought that in horror films, you know how it goes, the stereotypes, the black guy dies first, <laughs> the blonde the blonde virgin goes till the end. You know, it's the yeah. same, same story over and over. So I was so excited to bring a different sto- stories into the genre. If I'm going to be doing this and you're going to put me here, I'm going to, I'm going to bring me with right. it <laughs> and my ideas. And it was so cool to be able to work with Felicia Rashad on a film called Black Box that I did. Um, Mrs. Cosby, come on. <laughs> um, and um, and in a horror film, right? So it yeah, was it yeah, was very, incredible. very cool. So I can talk about those a little bit. There are four more films coming out in the series. Okay. And I think they are exceptional. I cannot wait to see <laughs> how it all comes together. I don't know, people don't know this about films. We shoot them and then maybe a year later it comes out. <laughs> I mean, th- that must be terrifying because you've done your work and then you kind of wait until people actually get to see what you've done. And, and I'm sure you kind of are both oh my super God. excited to show people, but then Oof. probably a bit terrified about what they might think. I'm right? so nervous. <laughs> I'm so nervous at premieres and all the stuff. I get so nervous. And of course, I'm yeah. looking at things that no one else sees. Yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at that button. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, is that earring twisted? Things that nobody is looking for. I will notice everything. Speaking about going to premieres, um, when when you're on the red carpet and when you're on set and and at work and and generally, I guess, rubbing shoulders with actors and, and other celebrities, as a South African, was it difficult at first to sort of own your space and... What I mean by that, the, the hidden question that I'm asking is, you know, sometimes as South Africans, we, we get tricked into thinking that we aren't good enough on the global stage. And, you know, we're just from a tiny little country at the tip of Africa. And, you know, words like imposter syndrome sometimes come to mind. Did that affect you at all? That, you know, is it something that is part of your your mindset, you know, when you're on the red carpet or, or dealing with these people that you that you work with? No. Not at all. The first, I tell people I'm South African before they ask. So I don't want them to think that I'm Australian. Um, I tell them that I'm mixed race before they ask. So they don't have to ask me, you know, they ask me, you know, and then they they say, you are, how can you be African? (laughs) Um, (laughs) You grew up in the show. And I'm like, honey, honey, do you have time? Because I'll tell you. I'll give you pictures. I have my receipts, honey. I will show you my pictures of my great grandparents. Um, I come from a very strong line of black women, you know, and so these discussions I'm not afraid of. Yeah, I'm very yeah. proudly South African and I have, am happy to tell you if you want to know. Um, it was 
I don't. I guess what I've come to realize, especially this year, this was a quite a, a a year of learning, right? 2020, we learned so much about ourselves and one another. Yeah, exactly. And I learned a lot about the Black American experience mm-hmm. here in the states. I always, you know, it's Cape Townians and South Africans. We just we are a melting pot. Um, we understand our differences, but. They're celebrated in our country um, right. for the most part. We, especially our age groups, like we're not, we're, we're so, we, we, I, I'm, uh, I'm older than you. Um, but I was there when Nelson Mandela came out of prison. I was too young to vote, but we celebrate our differences, I think. And we yeah. learn yeah. from each other and we have to, we live in this small little peninsula. <laughs> we have to get <laughs> along, right? I, and I just assumed coming here that it was a similar experience. And and it's not. It's yeah. completely different. And I had to relearn that thinking. We're not just all people of color. There's a black American experience. Yeah. So for me, it was, an, it, it was educational because I would say I'm mixed race. Like I'm a colored girl from South Africa. I grew up in apartheid. Like we're similar. And I realized it's different. Is that something that, that people in America can understand? No, no, not at all. I have to really explain myself. Um, because it is a different experience here, which is fine. It's fine. It's it's just not similar as I thought. We're progressive in a lot of ways in our country that they are not here. And that became apparent to me probably in the first year I was here. I was watching the news here and a teacher was fired for being gay. Mm-hmm. I was like, what? In America? What? No. You know, and so, yeah, they have some learning to do from us, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, and we can learn from them. Yeah, we. I've never been ashamed of being South African. That's not a thing. Why I will tell you though, coming from this highly educated family, and being an artist, I've mm-hmm. had moments where I, I felt like, oh my gosh, do I not know enough? You know, we have yeah. to call my sister who's a lawyer and ask her advice when in dealings uh, with business and call my dad and mom to proofread my my writing, my bio and stuff like that. Yeah. So I've definitely yeah. had those moments of insecurities um, as far as that goes, where my art, art brain is, you know, I just like don't feel good enough in that yeah. respect. And then, you know, I, I hire a lot of people who are, have they graduate, they've graduated and have, um, oh, what is it? They masters in costume mm-hmm. design, and they work for me, yeah. and that's intimidating. I never studied costume design yeah. ever. Not in in college. I I studied with my grandma. I learned at home, and I've learned uh, work study in a sense. So that's a little bit intimidating sometimes. But then I have to check myself and go, oh yeah, they work for me. The gift yeah. that I have is from God. It can't be taken away. It just is. Right. And I'm grateful for that. And I do what I do. I can't do what anybody else can do. And they cannot do what I can do. It's such a beautiful thing being an artist. The psychologist the other day said something. They said that they you know, started a new thing at work. They mm-hmm. ask people, they ask people, what is it that you did this past week that no one else can do or yeah. could have done? To you know, and for me, the answer is so easy. No one can do anything that I do because <laughs> you would require my brain, my history, my upbringing, everything that is me goes into everything that I do as an artist. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. 
it's cool. No, absolutely. And and I mean, just thinking thinking about that, and if you don't mind me just un- unpacking that a little bit, because that's certainly something that that me as a as a colored male, um, you know, I also grapple with. And I think there's, as I'm hearing it, this intergenerational significance in your journey and and everything that you've accomplished um you know you, you said your your grandma was was a seamstress and and your parents were teachers and for them at least they were kind of limited in in what they could achieve because of apartheid and and because of you know the the circumstances at the time and and yet if you don't mind me grouping us in the same generation um for, for us it's a bit different right because there is far more out there in the world we've got access to so many more opportunities than, than people had before, yet on some level it still feels like we're being held back a little bit by what has gone in the past. Is is that something that, that you'd agree with? Do you ever feel that kind of on a on a daily basis that you know you're kind of still dealing with some of the things that maybe your parents did, even even though you, you might not have gone through it yourself? I have absolutely felt as though I've had to deal with the things that my parents have gone through, um, but I also just reject any limitations placed on me. I've always been that way. That's why when they argue with me and tell me that I am disobedient, I'm like, but you made me this way. <laughs> you you made me this way. You tell me to challenge. Yeah, yeah. And And that's how I've lived my life. You know, my mother was an activist growing up um, and I answered the phone when she got the, the death threats. Oh, wow. And okay. my, yeah, so I've come from this, I, I have spirit, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and I get it from them, those women. I also, there's something for me in being, you know, a lot of our people make up the majority of factory workers. They sew yeah. in these factories. And I, I want to show little girls from where I'm from that you can do what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. as well you know you can take that gift it just happens to be something that our people do you can take that gift and take it all the way to the top and and to those girls if i can ask you a very cliched question um what would you say to them growing up thinking that they might want to become a famous fashion designer um, or costume designer what, what advice do you give them they can be whatever they want to be. You can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. I know this sounds cliche, but you have you actually have to believe in your gifts and abilities in yourself and realize your uniqueness. And we are unique. And I realize that more and more the more I travel. And people ask me, what are you? That doesn't have to be an insult. Right. That's actually amazing. What am I? Well, let me tell you about my people. Let me tell you where I'm from. <laughs> You've never heard about paradise. Let me tell you. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. change your perspective. That doesn't. You don't have to be offended by everything. People are uneducated um, when they and fearful in general mm. when they mm. ask questions that that uh, trying to insult you. What you can do is change the narrative and make it and educate them. Yeah. And yeah. I've certainly, you know, the first time this is terrible, but the first time that I had somebody actually racist in front of me at a party, they heard that I was South African. And he thought this was a perfect opportunity to have a discussion about using words that I have never heard people use. I've heard that people use these words, but I've never (laughs) heard people use them in my presence. Oh my gosh. And that was the first time that happened to me was in North Carolina. The other thing that happens to me here all the time is I'll meet people 
and they'll say, oh, what school did you go to? First question, because they're trying to pinpoint what are yeah. you, yeah. you know? And I, well, I went to South Peninsula High. How about you? Do you know what I mean? Right. Where's that? So they, they do that thing. And um, that at first I was insulted. I would be like, oh, I know what you're doing. So um, whatever. <laughs> we don't have to be friends. I would, it would get me. But I realized it's actually a moment to educate. Yeah, yeah no, we're here too. I didn't leave because I'm scared. But I'm here. I'm yeah. right here with you at the same event as you. So you don't have to back down just because your ID number might say, give you numbers and put you in a certain category just because, um, you know, we were told that we're second class. It, we're not. You don't have to believe any of that. Mm -hmm. That's made up. That's made Absolutely. up. Absolutely. The doors, you all have to do is knock on that door. And just, you know, no is not, if you don't accept no as your final answer, you just keep going. You're going to hear some no's. Yeah. I certainly yeah. have. You keep going until you get the yes, and then you show them what you've got. And that's it up on this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast to make sure you don't miss out on the next one. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please do share with others and leave a rating and review. This is the Breaking Out Podcast, and I've been your host, Chad Lazar. Until next time. <laughs>